Hey, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Killer Cross-Examination, the podcast where we talk about all varieties of criminal justice and criminal defense issues. As you know, it's my goal, uh, my desire to help you find more justice in uh, the legal system and more justice in your own lives. And we try to do it by uh, entertaining you and sharing stories with you, telling you war stories, talking about current event issues. And today, I'm excited to, to introduce part two of my one-on-one -on -one interview with Jeff Lickman. Last week, last episode, our last episode was part one of my one-on-one -on -one with Jeff Lickman, who's one of the all-time badass, in-your-face criminal defense lawyers. I mean, this guy's like in-your-face. He actually describes cross-examinations in a way that's a physical cross. He tries to get at the witness immediately. His goal is to get under that witness and get into that witness's head and to establish immediately that that witness, to get that witness off balance, to get that witness on his heels. His goal is to begin to punch and then incessantly bludgeon that witness for as long as he's on the stand. Last week was, last episode last week was part one of my one-on-one -on -one with Jeff Lickman. And today, this episode is part two. So put on your seatbelts. Um, if, you, if you have a cool beverage, if, uh, if you like to smoke a cigar or you want to have a cool beverage or whatever it is that you do to help you sort of get the maximum experience for a half an hour, I got a half an hour of Jeff Lickman, part two, Jeff Lickman, one-on-one -on -one with me on Killer Cross-Examination. criminal defense attorney, Neil Rockheim. I'll give you another story. I don't know if I ever wrote about this in a blog, is I had a fellow who was accused of uh, assaulting a cop, and it was in a very white, very police-dominated town in Rockland uh, County, New York. And if you... Assault a cop, it's a mandatory two-year minimum. And what happened was he was going to visit his ex-wife, and his ex-wife was afraid of him, and she called the police and said that he had a knife in his pocket. So the police arrived, he's got his hands in his pockets, and they're like, look, sir, we don't want any problems. Just take your hands out of your pockets so we know there's no knife. He says, I'm not taking my hands out of my pockets. They said, look, we don't want any problems. Just take your hands out of your pockets. He refused to do it. So the two cops went up to him. They pulled his hands out of the pockets. He never hit the cop, but he tried to resist. The cops fell on the ground with him. One of them badly sprained his thumb and tore a ligament. In the statute in New York, if you're injured while trying to arrest somebody or perform your duties, that counts as an assault, and it's a two-year minimum. So I almost had no defense because there were not only witnesses that saw it, but there were cops that were blonde-haired, blue-eyed cops, and I had a jury that had about uh, nine people in it that were either cops, married to a cop, the son of a cop, you know, the daughter of a cop, and it was a very hard case to win. But there was one juror during jury selection, I still can't believe this, who had a very strong Haitian accent. 
And for some reason, I would have thought that if I'm the prosecutor, I want to keep the 12 whitest police, pro-police uh, jurors in that I can. And I heard him say in very broken English, you know, what happened in this case happened to me. But I could tell that the prosecutor was looking down, wasn't paying attention. And I heard this and I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe this guy just said this. So uh, during voir dire, he doesn't question the guy at all, the prosecutor. And I'm astounded that he didn't ask him what happened. Now, the day ends and I have an opportunity to do some research that night. Again, if you don't do this kind of stuff, you're in the wrong profession. <clears throat> and I Googled his name and I went to Pacer and I finally found the case in federal court in that same county in which he sued the police after he claimed he was beaten by the cops. Very similar to what we were claiming. Wow. We claimed what, a what a find. Incredible. This happened six months before the El Chapo case. And he uh, sued the cops. The case was dismissed. And I figured he was pretty pissed about it. So during voir dire, as you can imagine, I completely ignored him. When the jury, when we were talking to the jury during the case opening, and I was playing up the fact that my client had bruises all over his body and a black eye after, um, I was basically suggesting he was beaten by the cops. And it was no defense because if the guy gets injured performing his duties, it's an assault regardless if they beat him up. And during the summation, I ignored the other 11 jurors. I completely ignored them and I got right in the face of the one juror. And I said, here is your opportunity to get back at police that abuse people that they're trying to arrest. This is what they do. They beat you, they abuse you, and when you come out and you say that they did this to me, it's not fair, they lie about it and say that it never happened. This is your opportunity to get justice for you. And I said this during the summation. The prosecutor had to think I was out of my mind. Well, he's pumping his fist and he's shaking his head, and I knew I had him. I walked back to the client and said, there's no way you're getting convicted. And sure enough, after a bunch of days, the trial lasted five days, the jury was out four, they come back hung. And uh, we then, we gave him an Allen charge, which was designed, obviously, to force a verdict. It didn't work. After it was over, uh, one of the jurors came up to me, and she was like, I cannot believe this guy was so guilty. And I said, how many did I have? Just one? She said, no, you had four of us. He convinced three more of us. Wow. And I said to That's the prosecutor. Great, great story. With that juror, and I said to the prosecutor, I have to, he was a young guy. I said, what were you thinking? How could you possibly leave this guy on the, on the jury? He says, I didn't hear him say that. I said, but why would you leave a black guy on the jury when you know full well that his community is traditionally abused by police? He said to me, and I'll never forget this. He says, well, your client was a Jew, so I figured that he hated Jews. Oh, oh my God. Did you yeah. want to sock the guy? Or did you just... Did you, did you just instead is I ended up working out a deal for no jail disposition and it was a case that we had no right uh, avoiding two years in jail and the guy never spent the day in jail so all's well done. okay a couple of questions so you're you're obviously passionate I mean some of the things you've described that you believe are when I read some of your 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 blog articles and some of your comments it it made me reaffirm some of the things that I do that are different because I use snark and I'm sometimes sarcastic and I am use humor. Um, and I, you know, and I've been relentless to the point that I've had some of my associates who are sitting there are like, you know, do you think that, I mean, you've, you've, you've got the point. And one time a judge even said, 
Neil, uh, Mr. Rockham, you get the point. And I'm like, well, tell them that, tell the yeah. jury that they ought to, that, that, you know, that we approached the bench, Mr. Rockham, sure. We approached the bench, prosecutors, I think you made your point. And I'm like, well, tell them that I made my point. Telling me here at the bench doesn't do anything. You, if you want to say in front of the jury that you made, Mr. Rockham, you made your point. He's a, he's not a believable witness. Fine. So where did you, where did this, all this, the passion, the, the storytelling, where did it, the, the bad winning, you know, which I, again, I, I totally respect. Um, I would do a touchdown dance if, you know, if, if I would patent one, if I could. So where did that all come from in your background? What, what got you to that point that you're that guy? You know, I, I tell this story sometimes and I think it probably partly has to do with it. I, I grew up and I was a very type B personality and I was going to be a doctor. My parents told me, you know, when you're a Jewish kid from New Jersey, you're either going to go to medical school or law school. There's no choice. You have no other choice at that moment when you're a kid. And my father always told me, you know, you're very passive. You're a nice boy. You're a smart kid. You did well in school. You should be a doctor. So I always assumed I was going to be a doctor. And then I decided uh, during college that I didn't have the personality to be a doctor. I really didn't have much patience for people. I mean, literally. So I decided that I thought that I might be a better lawyer. I'd seen a movie uh, called uh, The Verdict with Paul Newman. Great and movie. Great closing argument, right? Yeah. It just completely made me think this was for me. I like the drama. I like the pressure. And I always felt, you know, this was for me. So I got all excited one day. I had been in a biology class. Uh, it was a summer class. I was still pre-med. I was a straight A student. And the teacher, her name was Professor Katie Dew. I still remember. This has got to be the summer of 1985, perhaps. So what's that, 26 years ago? And uh, we were cutting, we were uh, dissecting a fetal pig. And she looks over at my pig and says, oh, you can see Jeff's Malpigian tubules and whatever the, the fuck that is. I don't even remember. <laughs> yeah. Everybody crowded around to look at my pig. And I sort of got pushed back out of the crowd. And literally, you know, very rarely in life do you have a clear mind where you know this is a big decision, but it's clear. There's no doubt. It's very hard to have no doubt with big decisions. And I, it was like a light shined down on me. And I said, look, this pre-med is not for you. You need to go to law school. This is, this is where your talents lie. So I got back to my dorm room at the time, and I called my mother, and I said, I'm dropping pre-med. I'm, I'm going to law school. And she said, you know, whatever makes you happy makes me happy, which is probably the only reason I can tolerate my mother now is because of that moment. I really needed support because I was a scared 20-year-old kid. And I called up my father, who was paying for law uh, for college, and I said, Dad, I'm not going to medical school. I'm going to become a lawyer. And he said, no, 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 no way. You're going to go to medical school. And I said, I'm not going to medical school. And he says to me something that I'll never forget. He says, you're not shifty enough to be a lawyer. And I listened to this, and I'm like, what? Why do you have to be shifty to be a lawyer, whatever that means? And I said, you're wrong. I said, I'm going to be good at this. He says, well, I'm not paying for law school. So I was like, okay. So I finished uh, college and I took the LSATs, true story. And um, I was kind of shaken about it. And my father and I, you know, mended fences about it. And I had gotten into a bunch of law schools and I had gotten waitlisted at every top 10 law school in the country. If you remember, when you're applying to law school, they don't always yeah. like 
they like to gauge how big the class is going to be, so they'll let in a few people at a time off the wait list. So most people uh, at top schools were getting in a little bit at a time. And I said to my father, well, law school starts like in a month. The best law school that I got into was Fordham at the time. And I said, so I suppose, you know, I'm going to go there. Can I get a check? And my father, bless his heart, rest, he may rest in peace, was paid for all my education. I never had a loan. I didn't realize how lucky I was until I got out of school and I saw everybody else had loans. And uh, he said to me, well, Fordham's the best law school? I said, yeah. He says, I'm not paying for a law school that's not top 10. I said, now you're telling me? He said, yeah. And I got waitlisted at Penn, at Georgetown, at Cornell, at Northwestern, at NYU, at Duke, um, you know, you name it. And I panicked because I obviously had about $3 to my name. I had not um, applied for any financial aid. And, you know, this is how my life has always been. I've always been able to rely on good luck. The next day, I was delivering Domino's pizzas that summer. I had no money. I didn't come from a wealthy background. I was delivering Domino's pizzas, you know, with the Domino, the whole deal, the hat. And I get a, a, a thick envelope. There was no internet back then. It was the uh, summer of uh, 1987. And it was an acceptance from Duke. I got into Duke. My father said, fine, I'm going to pay for it and paid for for law school. And I always felt part of me that he didn't really believe that I was good at this. So I worked my ass off and I had really a burning desire to prove him wrong. And this oftentimes is how the people use motivation. They feel slights and they use it to motivate. And I invited my father. He saw me on court TV and I was a young lawyer, but he never saw me in court until I was in the Gotti trial, which was now 2005. I had just turned 40 years old. He had never seen me in court. He was proud of me because he saw me on TV. This was not the only case I ever had that never made any news. But I invited him, him and his wife up to, to see the case. I got him seats in the front row, and I was cross-examining one of the maniac mafia killers. And it was a really physical cross-examination. And I beat, again, beat the living shit out of this guy so bad that during a break, he stood up as the jury walked out and stuck his finger at me and mind shooting me in front of the judge. And as I said to him, I went right up to his face and I said, good thing your finger's not loaded. And the judge laughed. He was embarrassed. We then called a break for lunch. I walked past my father and I said, shifty enough for you now? It's <laughs> a good story. Keep in mind, this is now... But this was also an interesting, that's an interesting trial to have invited your dad to, because your whole theme in the Gotti trial was, your whole theme was about fathers and sons. Like it was all like a father-son type yep. case. Yep. It was about uh, the, the cooperators were all acolytes of Sammy Gravano. They were his uh, mafia sons. He was a very famous cooperator, and they were following in his footsteps. And John's father was obviously uh, the boss. He didn't want to follow in his dad's footsteps. Like, he wanted to be his own his own guy. He was initially wanted to be his father, and then he decided to go his own way. And I tried to draw the separation. Amazing. I said that Amazing. to my father, and he looks at me. He's like, what are you talking about? I said, you don't remember? He's like, what are you talking about? I said, in 1985, I told you I was, this is in the courtroom. I said, I told you that I was dropping pre-med and I wanted to go to law school and you told me I wasn't shifty enough. He looks at me and he says, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I said, I have it tattooed on my arm over here. I didn't really, but in my brain, it really was. It's, and it's 
That's like your mantra. That's like something that's been obviously guiding you your whole your whole life. It just drove me so hard. And I often tell people, be careful what you say to your children. Be careful how you treat your children. Because you may think that it's a throwaway line, but believe me, they hear everything. And, you know, they're going to be telling it to a shrink one day on a couch 30 years later. I never did. I'm, I'm telling to you and your audience. But it's what really drove me very hard to be a relentless lawyer, to go from being a type B personality to being quite the type A. My view is on any case, I'm not stopping until you're dead. And I remember one time I was in uh, the uh, elevator with one of the Gotti prosecutors, and they were just hating me the entire trial. They weren't prepared. Every witness, I had a massive amount of impeachment that they weren't aware of. I was trying this defense that he withdrew from the mafia that they never expected. They never had, they never were prepared for anything that I was doing. And they got frustrated. And it would be easy to, you know, take the abuse, which is I, I thought that I was winning the whole trial. And I remember one of them said to me in the elevator in front of the press, he just turns to me and he's like, you're such a scumbag. And I turned to him and I said, you're such a shitty prosecutor. You're such a shitty lawyer. Instead of insulting me, why don't you shut your fucking mouth and watch? You might learn something. Okay. I walked out of the elevator, didn't think a, a second thought about it. Because, again, these cases to me are life and death. I'm not just fighting for the client. I'm fighting for me. I'm fighting for me. If I win, you win, the guy sitting next to me. The next day, one of the prosecutors I was close with comes up to me and he's like, before the day starts, he's like, I've got to ask you a favor. And I'm like, what's that, Mike? He says, you had a run in, you know, in the elevator with, and mentioned the prosecutor's name. I said, yeah, I said, the balls of this guy to insult me in front of the press. He says, he's completely devastated about what you said to him and embarrassed. I can't get him to do any work. I said, so what do you want from me? This actually happened. He says, can you go over there and apologize to him? I said, apologize to him? I said, he insulted me. I just responded. He says, I'm asking you man to man. This guy will not work anymore. He's completely emotionally wrecked by what you did. This is the Southern District of New York. These are Harvard prosecutors. I said, you know what? I'm going to do that for you. And I walked up to him and I said, look, I just want to apologize about yesterday. I didn't mean what I said. No, you're a very good lawyer. He thanked me, shook my hand. I walked over to the other prosecutor, rolled my eyes. And I'm thinking, man. One day, if I don't forget about this, I got to put this in a book because I can't believe Great. Well, you'll write a book one day. You've got enough stories to write a book. Oh. Okay, a couple of questions. So you've said, I know you've said that uh, every case, every trial, you believe every case out there is winnable. Do you, Absolutely. All right, so there are some, what's the biggest case, because I know you've done television you know, analysis and expert stuff and radio commentary and What's the biggest case that you've seen out there that ended up in a loss that you thought to yourself, you know what, man, I could have won that case. Oh God. Um, Martha Stewart's trial. I thought that, that case should have been won. Um, oh God. There's so many cases that I've okay, seen. Like, for example, Bill Cosby. Do you think you could have won the Cosby trial? I think the problem with the Cosby case is that the first trial, if you recall, was a hung jury. And it was right. because, not allow any of the other prior victims to come in and testify. They fixed that in the second case by bringing all that evidence in the prior bad act evidence and that doomed them. That was a very tough case. My view on these cases is this. If you go by evidence alone, you're losing the case, most likely in any kind of significant case. They're not bringing these cases in a half-assed manner. If you go by the evidence alone, you're losing. So I try to 
employ some sort of jury nullification, which I know is not permitted, but you know, what am I gonna do? And I tried to appeal to the prejudices, uh, to the concerns of the jury, and it happened in Chapo's case. Where you're trying to identify not just that, uh, not just that if you do this, it's is it a greater good here. There's a there's a greater good. Like your verdict, you can go back to the jury room and think, okay, maybe I don't like that guy, but there's a greater there's a greater benefit here. And I'll go to the jury and say, look, you saw what they brought in front of you. You saw this lying slop that they brought in front of you. If you go back there and, and convict, you're just putting a rubber stamp on everything that they did. You know these people were lying. Sometimes in trials, what I'll do, I've got to take chances in the Gotti case. I said uh, during my opening statement, because I really had to take some chances, I said the first witness that's coming on, cooperator, is Frank Fabiano. I said, here's what I'm asking you to do. I know that you want to convict him right now. I know the case hasn't even started, but all 12 of you are ready to convict. I want you to do this. If I can't get him to, if I can't catch him in a lie during the cross-examination, don't listen to me the rest of the trial. Convict him. You have my permission. Convict him. I said, if I catch him in one or more lies on cross-examination, I want you to have an open mind and realize that this government is full of it that they're going to put liars on the stand one after another. And I'm going to show you that Frank Fabiano is a government witness who will say anything to get out of jail. That was a ballsy thing to do, but I had nothing. That was. To, I had nothing. That was. Look. And did you get him? Oh, I destroyed him. Absolutely. He was looking up at the end and saying, yes, 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 you, yes. You are, I know that you're someone that I can, I believe you use, you, you come up with some themes for your cases. Do you do that on the fly or do you think of these things ahead of time? Like, for example, I know in Gotti, you were talking about a lot of father, son, Look, the movies that always got me the most were the father, son movies, because they're the ones that every kid has that relationship with their dad, where we're just not measuring up, right? Where we're just not there. Um, that's a great theme. And you must have, I mean, so, and you also referred to, I think, um, all of the cooperators in that case, you called to get a name for them all. You called them, what was it? Uh, it was a play on, what's that? The Sons of Sammy. Yes. So do, do you theme that? Do you come up with those themes in all of your cases? Do you think of them on the fly? Yeah. Are they things you come up with beforehand? I don't think of anything on the fly. When I try a case, it looks spontaneous. I mean, there will be spontaneous parts of cross, obviously something will come up. And the more work you do preparing for a cross, the more understanding you have of the material, the more room, more leeway you have to, to go off script, so to speak, as you know the information so well. Everything that comes out of my mouth, otherwise a trial, has been carefully choreographed beforehand. The son of Sam uh, was a famous serial killer in New York City in the 70s. So any juror knows who the son of Sam was. He was a maniac. Sammy Gravano who was the, the, the patron saint of mafia cooperators for the government. All of these witnesses that the government had in the Gotti Jr. case, as I said before, were acolytes of Sammy Gravano. So I turned, termed them sons of Sammy. That was something that I thought of before. And my entire theme was just that, was that these sons were following after their their father, their symbolic father. And John, on the other hand, couldn't ever impress his father enough and decided to make a break and do things differently. That kind of theme, when you have a good theme that works, it flows. I wrote that opening statement, maybe right. in maybe two sittings, 
the entire thing. The opening was you know, 45 minutes long. I wrote the entire thing in one or two sittings because it just flowed from, from my brain through my hands. It's, it's very hard when you don't have a good theme, writing the opening, if you want to write a good opening, is very, very, very painful and laborious. So it's important that you have a theme because you need to have the jury believe you. And the easiest thing for them to believe you is to have them latch on to a theme that they can go back to. But it's got to be a theme that works. You can't lie to a, juror, uh, a jury in the opening. And then in summation, you know, they, the government's got the receipts. It says, look, he said this in the opening. He said X, Y, and Z, and he, and he never proved any of it. So you can't believe this defense lawyer. He's a liar. <clears throat> so you need to have a, a theory that works. And every one of your questions during the case you want to be able to link it to that theory, but these people will do anything. With Frank Fapiano, I said to him, you're aware that Sammy Gravano wrote a book, right? Uh, yeah, I think I heard about that. I said, you think you heard about it? I said, when the book came out, you were in prison, uh, excuse me, you were on the street, you were working for the Gambino family, and you're telling me that when that book came out, that that wasn't the talk of every one of you? Of course it was. He said, well, you know, I don't really read books. And I said, come on, are you telling me that you didn't look at that book? Well, I did look at it. I just looked in the index for my name. I said, you're aware that he killed 19 people? Well, something like that. He said, what was the sentence he got? I don't know. I said, you're telling me that when you were a mafia soldier and you heard that Sammy Gravano got five years for killing 19 people, you never knew about that? I never knew. I'm like, you're lying to the jury. Of course you knew. These are the things that sometimes witnesses, you know, cooperators, you know, killers, maniacs, they think that they've got to be perfect for the government. All he had to say was, look, of course I knew that he got five years, but I also knew that if he had gotten caught lying on the stand, he could have gotten life. Instead, he was so afraid to tell the truth because he would think that the jury might believe that he was looking for a very low sense. He wanted to take the position, well, I don't know what I can get. And it ended up backfiring, and that's why you've got to be able to outsmart these people. And usually they're pretty stupid, even if they're very accomplished liars. I love I love that you – some things I want people to be able to take away from, from this. One, you, you've given people license to, to use some snark and to, to use humor. Some of the questions that you're, 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 you're encouraging people to be prepared. I can't stand the guys and sit there and just – basically do a re a direct exam of a witness and they're just putting like the, the words correct or like, I remember a guy who did a, 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 a cross and I'm watching, I'm thinking like, who, who started you on? Yeah. Like it, it was, it was basically if there were any holes in the government's or the state's case, he patched them. You know, <laughs> tell a quick story. Yeah, please. At a federal trial in 2008, it was a multi-defendant case. I had the lead defendant. It was a Jamaican, uh, it was a Jamaican marijuana and, and violence case, murder. And as the lead lawyer, I was doing massive cross-examinations on every cooperator because my guy was mentioned by every one of them. For some reason, lawyers, and this is one of my pet peeves about lawyers, they insist upon hearing themselves speak. And every time I would do a massive cross-examination and kill the witness, there would be some of the lawyers that just insisted upon standing up and trying to show that he could cross-examine too. And inevitably what would end up happening is he would end up doing rehabilitation of the witness. 
And it started getting me pissed off. And I started talking to the lawyers saying, listen, the guy's got to calm down. If I'm doing a good cross, you don't have to ask any questions. I'm hitting your clients as well. Finally, during one of the main witnesses in the case, after I finished a two-day cross, one of the lawyers who just could not control himself started crossing again and just taking away all the points that I had scored. I look over at the federal judge and she's laughing at me. In, this is in, in the middle of the cross-examination. She's laughing at me and saying, and I see her mouth to me, do something. And I said to her, you do something. And she says, fine. And she says, I'd like everybody over at sidebar. This actually happened in a federal criminal case. And this is, shows how decent that you have judges that usually want convictions, but if they respect the lawyer, they're gonna look out for the defense lawyer. If they think you worked hard and you deserve a better faith than you're getting. She brings us all to sidebar and she says that all of us assembled, she says, Mr. Lickman would like to speak to you in the robing room. We go into the back. I say to the lawyer in front of the other, other lawyers, just listen to me, you need to shut the fuck up now. I don't want you saying another word for the rest of the trial. You're very bad at this. I don't want to insult you but your client is gonna lose the case if you keep asking questions. Every other lawyer turned to him and said, you gotta shut up, man. So we got back inside, I looked at the judge, she smiled at me. He went up and said, no further questions, never said another word. The incredible thing is, is that when the case was over, this was the last trial that I lost before Chapo. My client got convicted, his got acquitted. He didn't say a single word after that the rest of the trial. And sometimes you need to just say, look, I'm not gonna be polite anymore. I'm not gonna be polite, I wanna win the case. <clears throat> and I'm gonna do whatever I have to do to win. If it means I'm gonna hurt some feelings, too damn bad. It's funny, I, um, I have a similar story, I'll tell you sometime, but I have a similar story. But one of the guys that I know really well, a great lawyer, a great Detroit lawyer, there were seven defendants, seven lawyers, and there was one witness that was really, really, really important for his client. Like it had to be handled just so to keep his, the cross to keep his client away from this, the, the room where, you know, where stuff was found. And another lawyer starts walking over to do like, you know, the typical cross. And, you know, the, I know he didn't, the witness didn't mention my client, but let me just reemphasize that. Let me gild the lily a little bit. And, you know, so as the lawyer starts to walk over by my friend, uh, he leans back like this and he goes, <laughs> just, and she just stood up. She just stopped and said, your honor, I'm not going to ask any questions. Turned around and sat down. I mean, look, sometimes, you know, lawyers have big egos and it's not easy for them to feel, you know, that they don't matter. But look, you know, if you're in a foxhole in the middle of a war, you know, let, let me fight. Just let me fight. And if I'm being, successful if i'm being effective don't do something to hurt me i most, get it get it most lawyers get it and I'm, glad, and I'm glad to hear you say that and jeff listen i it's been a real honor for me to to talk to you um i don't i know i don't want to take up you know some crazy amount of your time i know you got a, a life to live let me just say i'm a big fan um i'm i'm one of those i'm a i'm a i'm strange in that way i read I, the fiction books i read are about lawyers or trials the movies i watch are about lawyers or trials I, I i love this shit i love it i'm proud to be able to have found a profession that fits 
my personality. Um, and I'm honored to, to consider you someone that does the same thing as me. And I only hope one day to, to get a chance to meet you face to face. And let me just kind of wrap up a little bit. So Jeff Lickman, super lawyer, top lawyer, probably right now, uh, and maybe probably for the last 15 years, the, at least the most recognized sought after lawyer in New York city. Um, he probably is not going to represent you in a traffic ticket, but you know, something more serious, he's your guy. Jeff, if someone wanted to reach you uh, or they wanted to look you up, what's the best way for them to reach you? What's the best way for them to look you up online? You can go to my website. I've got all the information there. It's just jeffreylickman.com, L-I-C-H-T-M-A-N.com. And, and it's been a pleasure to be here as well, an honor for me as well to do this. I really enjoyed it. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you. And have Thank a great you. evening and, uh, you know, best of health, all right? You too. Talk to you soon. Criminal defense attorney, Neil Rockheimer.